You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. Point of the video is that you cannot believe everything that you see on television. Uh, and that's really why we're doing this series, this series about doctrine, because we're really in a time period that I think is strategic. Uh, doctrine, knowing why you believe what you believe is always important. Uh, understanding some major truths that God communicates in His Word, that's always important. But we're doing this series on doctrine because more and more, I believe, we are visiting days like this that Paul wrote about in Timothy. Look at these words. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. I'm afraid to a certain degree that's where we are today. And, and that's why we're doing this series on doctrine. Now, I want to give a disclaimer that I've already thrown out each week, and I probably will every week. If you came to this series or came today expecting to discover or find out everything there is to know theologically about God, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I am going to disappoint you because I don't have the capacity to tell you everything there is to know about God. You understand that? And on top of that, if anyone else ever tells you they can tell you everything there is to know about God, they're lying to you. <laughs> God's bigger than that. You know, we just don't have him completely figured out. But we can look in his word and see some things that he specifically tells us about in his word. In this series so far, we have talked about uh, God, who is God, and we looked at God being a trinity. He's a triune God, and that's kind of beyond the scope of our mind, being able to make that fit in our minds because it's a faith issue. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, what about the Bible, you know, why the Bible, uh, and the fact that it's God's revelation to us. God chose to reveal himself to us. It was our topic last week. The doctrine that we're going to visit today is a doctrine of creation or creationism. And in essence, we're asking this, where did we come from? Where did we come from? Our send-off text, and one I'll visit a whole lot during the message today, is found in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'll be honest with you, I think God so started the Bible in this way to just build our faith where it needs to be from the very beginning. Because if you and I can accept by faith that God created the heavens and the earth, then anything else that comes down the pike in the Bible shouldn't be hard for us to believe. If I believe that God is the almighty creator that made everything that exists, I shouldn't have any problem believing the miracles that you see in the Bible. I shouldn't have any problem believing that God parted the Red Sea and they walked over on dry land if I understand God's the one that created the heavens and the earth. I shouldn't have any problem believing that Jesus walked on the water, stilled the storms, went to the cross, died for our sins, took his life back up on the third day of sin, and sat down the right hand of God the Father to show us we have hope of everlasting life if I can just accept the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's like a faith foundation for us to attach ourselves to to help us believe all the rest of the Bible. Just up front, I'm going to tell you what I believe. 
I believe exactly what God says in his word. I believe God created everything, okay? I believe he created the universe. I believe he created all the planets, all the stars, the sun, the moon. I believe he created all the animals. I believe he created the bugs. I believe he created the snakes as much as I hate them. I believe he created everything. I believe he created us. The oxygen we breathe, all of it. He created all of it. And and we'll kind of defend that more as we... uh, go into the message today. I just believe it was a creative act of God that God did all of it. Here's really why I think he did it. God wanted to prove to us how much he loved us. He developed this creation, made this creation, put us in it because his ultimate goal was to send his son to die on a cross for our sins so that you and I could understand how much God loves us. And he communicates his love in a lot of different ways. As I prayed a moment ago, I prayed how, you know, God could have made the world black and white and a sea in black and white. He didn't. He made it in vivid colors. You know, God didn't have to make the flowers and stuff like that. I think just there are things in creation that pop out and scream at us that God is a loving God and God's a real God and he made all of this stuff for a reason. God created everything, and you'll see in just a moment, from nothing, from nothing. And yet, there are theories, and I want to emphasize theories. Have you ever, do you realize it's called the theory of evolution? It's called a theory. And yet, for the past hundred years or so, it has been approached in our culture like it's a fact. And it is not, it is a theory. And I think the reason behind it is this. Since an all-knowing, all-powerful God that created everything would also be a God that we're accountable to, an authoritative God, an authoritative God that, that's in fully charge of everything, then men who do not want to accept that, men who want to deny the existence of God, use things like evolution to try and say, no, there's not a God, so I'm not accountable to him. That might fly under the radar a lot is the reason, but I, but I feel like that may very well be the reason. You realize that up until about the past 200 years, the predominant view of culture, of mankind, was that there's a creator. It was a theistic view, not an evolutionist view, but a theistic view that existed for all those years. It was only until what people call the age of reason or maybe the enlightenment of modernism, however you want to title it, that uh, science started kind of building this clout for itself and people started looking at science and using science to try and circumvent what the Bible has to say. Um, Mark Drisco, in his book on doctrine, said this, Science increasingly became identified with a naturalistic worldview. Now, a naturalistic worldview is this. Everything just came into existence. It evolved without a God. That's a naturalistic worldview. Science increasingly became identified with a naturalistic worldview and stood in direct opposition to the theistic worldview. Scientific evidence, notice this, became a weapon used by the opponents of Christianity to attack a biblical worldview. And that's what has taken place. Now, regrettably, 
some Christians have even adopted maybe a, a mixed hodgepodge of, of this to where, you know, they say, well, yeah, I believe the Bible, I believe Jesus died for my sins. But at the same time, they have started to adopt naturalistic, evolutionist, even atheistic views. Because it's, think about it, it's been taught for years now. I'm 55 years old. I can remember in the eighth grade, a girl by the name of Kendra Waltz crying her eyes out because our science teacher so upset her when he taught one day in class that we evolved from apes. Now, I don't even think the science teacher believed it because I've known him for some time now. I don't think he believes that. He was a little bit mean to the girl for about six months after that. Every time he'd see her, he'd start acting like an ape and she'd start crying again. And, uh, and I'll be that, but that's what's been taught. For, for so many years, this theory of evolution that no matter what you may hear in churches, a lot of times you go to school, whether it be in elementary school, high school, or college, or whatever, and, and you're being presented many times this theory as though it is a known, completely proven scientific fact. And who do we blame for that? You see, you know what the church wants to do? The church, we're real good at screaming at the darkness. You understand what I mean by that terminology? We're real good at screaming at the darkness and saying, well, it's the educator's fault or, it, or it's our government's fault because they're allowing it to be taught or whatever. You know where I think the fault really lies? I think it lies, lies right here in the pulpit in the churches in America because we have so easily just screamed against it and and. And the pulpits in America have not taken time to study creationism to where they feel like they're equipped to defend it in the view, in the light of evolutionism. And instead, they're just kind of, the church is sticking their head in the sand. Because it's like we, we don't think we can counteract. We can't argue opposing views in an educated way. And I'm telling you, we can. And that's what we're going to try and do today. And we ought to do it. We ought to, as Christians, we ought to be willing to accept what God's Word says about creation. And instead of us fleeing from challenges such as evolution, here's the deal with that. I think you and I as Christians ought to view such challenges as opportunities for us to deepen our faith and to teach other people about the God and the Jesus that we love. Instead of trying to hide from it, thinking, oh, I, I just can't, I don't know how to deal with evolution, so I'm just going to hide from it and ignore it. It ought to be an opportunity. You shouldn't flee from it. You know, evolution ought to be an opportunity for you and I to try and teach about Jesus when we run into people that are outright believing evolution. Before we jump into the message, and I'm going to do some points, uh, Brad McBride, who uh, helps work with our, our youth, is going to come up and do a point because Brad, when he found out we were doing this on creation, had studied creation at Liberty University and really loved parts of it. He's going to come up and do a point also uh, down point four. But before we just jump into the main parts of the sermon, I, I want you to, to kind of see some, some foundational comments I need to make to set the tone for what we're about to do. The first one is this. There's no conflict between Christianity and science itself. 
Because sometimes we get an idea in the church that, that science and Christianity are opposed to each other. Just science itself, there's no really conflict between the two because here's why. The God that created the universe, He's the one that set in order the natural laws that scientists have to go by in order to discover stuff. In, in order to, you know, they, they have to assume that there will be a, a regularity between natural laws. In, in other words, let me give you an example for that. Water will boil at the same temperature and, and pretty much in the same time. If you have all the elements, you know, equal, if the water started out at the same temperature before you started to heat it, you're at the, you know, the same elevation and everything like that, and you put the same amount of heat to it in the same amount of time, it's going to basically boil at the same time. Same boiling point of water. Why? There's a natural law there. That's just an example of how natural laws come to bear. There is, however, a total conflict between Christianity and scientific naturalism or evolution. Because naturalism says this, you can only believe what you can observe. How are you going to put God in a test tube? How are you going to run an experiment? You see, this type of view, scientific naturalism does away with faith. Because it says you can only believe what you can prove here by running this experiment, and then you can, can prove it. So there is a conflict that we need to recognize as Christians when it comes to Christianity and scientific naturalism or evolution. The Bible in the book of Genesis, a third foundational thought is this. The Bible in the book of Genesis were not written as scientific textbooks. But when it speaks of science, it is always true. I don't know how many of you know this. You want, you want to know how Columbus first came up with the idea that the world was round? He read in the Bible that the world was a, a sphere. That's how. When it speaks to science, it is always correct. But it was not written for that intent. Genesis was written to give us a theological narrative about the God of creation and His relationship to created humanity. The Bible was written for that reason. Galileo said this many years ago. When's the last time you, heard, you, you saw a scientist start a paragraph like this or a statement? The Holy Ghost. Huh? And yet years ago, he said this, the Holy Ghost intended to teach us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. So you need to understand the basis and the meaning for the Bible being written to begin with. Fourth foundational thought that you need to have in your mind before we get into the main part of this message is that a person's view of creation should not be the litmus test for Christian faithfulness. In, in other words, there are good Christian people that may believe creation in a little bit different nuance than what you believe it. And, and there are things in doctrine that I would refer to as, as open-hand issues and closed-hand issues. Here's a closed-hand issue. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Salvation by God's grace through faith, plus nothing, minus nothing, apart from works. That's a closed-hand issue. I will die for that. The inspiration of God's Word. That's a closed-hand issue. But there are other things within the realm of theological doctrine that there's some room for different interpretations to where there can be an open-hand issue, and it doesn't mean the two have to hate each other. You understand what I'm saying? You, you don't 
have to look at someone of the Christian that maybe sees creationism a little bit different than you do and say, well, you're going to hell. Because what they're believing may be an open hand issue. Having, uh, having said that, let's go ahead and, uh, and jump into the main part of the message. Here's our first question. What are the various Christian viewpoints of creation? Because there are more than one Christian viewpoint that's being taught. And, and you might think, well, this sounds like I'm in school. I'm having... Well, you, you kind of need to know some of this stuff because you may be confronted with it. And you need to understand why you believe what you believe. So there are some various Christian viewpoints of creation. The first one is this, historic creationism. And historic creationism is the one that was embraced by the majority of Christianity for years and years and years and years. Until, like I said, evolution and some things like that started coming up on the scene. In the beginning, the Bible says, the word for begin is a Hebrew word, and I'll let you pronounce it. How's that? <laughs> Better be careful how you say that, how fast you say it. <laughs> Safest thing for me to do is let you pronounce it in your own mind. That way no one can go and say, well, the pastor over day three said a dirty word on stage. <laughs> it, it means this. It means a starting point for what comes afterwards. It doesn't establish a specific time or length in time or necessarily mean that the next thing happens right away or immediately follows. Now, this isn't the gap theory. I'll tell you about the gap theory in a minute. What this theory says is this, that God initially started creation, and then for some reason He did not begin to prepare the earth to be populated until sometime later, no specified time. We don't know what the time might have been, even if there was a time. But that when God did start to prepare the earth for habitation, at that point in time, he did it in six 24-hour periods. So it holds to all of creation. Once God started preparing the earth to be inhabited, to have the plants and the animals and us here, once he started that, it was 24-hour days, six straight days, consecutive days. Historic creationism just says there might have been a time in front of it after God created matter before he started creating the earth to be inhabited, which leaves room for an old world because these scientists are all the time jumping up and down saying the world's older than the Bible says. The Bible leads us to believe that the world would be about 6,500 years old based upon the generation studies and things like that that you can do in the Bible. But scientists say it's so much older, and we'll deal with that in a moment. But that's, that's one, of the, uh, one of the views, uh, historic uh, creationism. Exodus tells us this, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Uh, another view is this, young earth, young earth creationism. Young earth creationism has the view that, you know, as you read the creation account, that there's not any distance at all between verse 1 and verse 2, and I'll talk more about that in just a moment, uh, in Genesis. And in other words, God created everything, and once he started, including all the universe and all the way up through to man being created, that all of it was done in six 24-hour days. Now, some people argue and try and say, well, there's problems with that because the 
moon and the sun weren't created till day four, and yet you've got morning and evening taking place earlier in Genesis. Well, see, I'm sorry, but I believe the Bible, okay? So here's my opinion of that. The God of all the universe that's smart enough to speak everything into being doesn't need a sun and a moon to let him know when a morning and an evening's come around. You understand? He doesn't have to have that. Here's another view that you've probably heard expounded before as far as a young earth creationism. In other words, the world being about 6,500 years old and from the time God started it until he finished it with six 24-hour periods. And it's simply this. God created Adam a full-grown man and Eve a full-grown woman. The Bible does not say that he created them and carried them around in his arms and changed their diapers and stuck a bottle in their mouth waiting for them to grow up. The instant they were created, they were adults. The same God that can do that, as far as I'm concerned, can create a world, an earth, that looks like it's a whole lot older than it really is. The, the God that can speak creation into existence, or the God that can say, let there be light and there be light. I, I'm sorry, guys, I'm just telling you, he can make it look any way he wants it to look. Okay, And that's why I'm saying these are... These are faith issues that we're talking about. Some people say, well, it can't be that young of earth. They've used carbon dating, and they've dated things here in this planet to show that it's just like, you know, billions of years old. And, and you hear that all the time as you're watching, you know, National Geographic or something on television. They don't tell you other things about carbon dating. A few years ago, some scientists were carbon dating some barnacles that were alive. I mean, they were still alive off the coast of Japan. The carbon dating showed the barnacles to be 10,000 years old. But they were still alive. I'm guessing carbon dating is not a completely proven science, is what I'm saying. So you can't just go with things like that. The gap theory is another theory that some Christians hold to. Uh, The gap theory comes from Genesis 1 and 2. And the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then period. And then it says, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. When you look at that in the original Hebrew, it can lend itself somewhat to there being a gap, a period of time that existed between verse 1 and verse 2. But the gap theory is not historic creationism that I mentioned earlier. The gap theory is this. God created the world. Chaos happened in some way. Maybe the fall of Satan or whatever that took place. Chaos happened in some way and kind of destroyed the world. And then God recreated the world and the story picks up in verse 2. The, the problem with that theory is this. Nowhere in the Bible are we told about a second creation. The only time we see anything that resembles a second creation is still future tense when God makes a new heaven and a new earth. We're not told anywhere in the Bible, anywhere else, it looks like there's a creation and somehow it was destroyed and then God recreated it. We're not told that anywhere at all in the Bible as being a fact or being evidence. 
We're told several times that God created the heaven and the earth, and several times in the Bible it's given a 24-hour look to it, a, a time period to it. But some people hold to this because it lets the earth be old. It gives them a place to park dinosaurs and things like that. And, uh, and Brad will probably have a little bit about that to say when he comes up. Another viewpoint is literary framework view. In other words, it's all a, a figure of speech. It's not really, you know, given historical information, but you know, that view uh, has several problems itself when you begin to look at it. It embraces uh, evolution somewhat in, in the way it's presented. Uh, the view is that six days were interpreted in a, in, in a metaphorical way, not literally 24 hours, but the Bible several ways stands against that. Day-age view is this. You've probably heard this before. You might not know what to call it. But a day-age view is that six sequ- sequential periods of days uh, took place, such as, if you heard somebody say before, a day with the Lord, the Bible says this, and I think Brad will read it later, a day of the Lord is as what? A thousand years. So some people will use that and try and use that to say, well, God created, but he wasn't talking about, you know, six literal days. It was like six ages. But there's a problem with that when you look at what the rest of the Bible has to say. The last view is a theistic view. And the theistic view is this. Theistic view is a view that God created matter, and he kind of started everything, and then he just kind of pulled back and let evolution take its place. But nowhere in the Bible is that taught. In fact, the Bible specifically gives us a picture of God being actively involved in his creation, and he still is. Aren't you glad? Now, I'm glad we've got a God that loves us and a God that is still actively involved in creation. The Bible nowhere teaches that God just, you know, made a bunch of matter and then said, there, let evolution happen. And yet that's a view that some people try and hold to. Also, the Bible teaches that, you know, one species uh, birthed its own kind. And it doesn't say anywhere about morphing or changing or anything uh, like that. All right, second main thing is this. What does the Bible say about creation? And we're going to look at Genesis where we've already been. And then I'm going to read some other verses uh, also. In Genesis, once again, we saw it a moment ago. It says, in the beginning, God created. Clearly says, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, you've got the picture of the triune God, the third part of the triune God, the Holy Spirit of God moving over the surface of the waters. The name Genesis that the book, of course, is titled means beginning or beginnings. God moved upon Moses' heart, inspired him to write this book some 1,400 years before Jesus was born. It was inspired of God just as other scriptures were inspired of God. Remember last week as we talked about the scriptures, all the scriptures being given by divine inspiration, and that Jesus quoted from where? Genesis? You've you've got to either believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about or he doesn't. Either he is God and he's telling us the truth or he's not. So Jesus believed these verses that we're looking at. Jesus believed Genesis. But Moses writes this. It's the first part of a a five-part book that Moses wrote called the Pentateuch. And the Holy Spirit inspired and just breathed it. It is written theologically in a selective way telling us the history that God wanted us to know, and it focuses upon God and mankind. God didn't tell us everything there is. 
I mean, I hope you understand that. Even the Bible itself in the New Testament tells us if everything were written about Jesus, there's not enough volumes of books in the world to hold them. So God has not just told us every little thing there is to know. He's revealed to us what was strategic, what we need to know, and God wanted us to know to begin with that He is the creator of heaven and earth, and He created mankind. You have the third part of the triune God, like I said, floating over the waters. Let's say, for instance, somehow science thinks they prove at some point in time a big bang theory because, see, they, they think this big bang happened and matter is still moving out, you know, and they think they've got all the evidence of that. I, this might sound oversimplified for you guys, but I'm telling you, this is an issue of faith that we're talking about. If they ever think they prove the big bang theory, I disbelieve this. There's a big God that made a big bang. Right in our first service, the end of the first service, Brian met me out in the hall, Brian Rogers up in our sound booth. He said, have I ever told you my theory of the Big Bang? And I, I said, no. And he said, have you ever been in a room just by yourself with like resident walls in the dark and you speak and how that, you know, kind of bounces off and everything? He said, can you imagine the voice of God and all that? And the impact of the voice of God? There's a word in that verse for created. Say God created the heavens and the earth. The word created is bara. It means to create something from nothing. And that's important. Because you see, some people have the view that that all the universe has kind of coexisted with God and always been there. Some people take that view. Or that there is matter already present in the universe and then somehow God just kind of encouraged it along, like I said a moment ago, and let evolution take place and stuff like that. No, the word that's used in the Hebrew means God from scratch, out of nothing, created everything that exists. You see, if you and I think we create something, if I were to do a, a painting or something, a piece of artwork, I am creating that with materials that already exist. You ladies, you know, go and you, you make a fantastic meal and everything. You're, you're creating it out of things that already exist. You, you didn't say, let there be flour, and there's flour, and then you decide to make a cake. God didn't have a tube that said creation on it, and banging on the corner, it popped open, and started making creation, like we do with biscuits. God started with nothing because He's God. He created everything that exists from nothing from scratch. Now, let me hit some other verses real quickly because we're really in a time crunch today. I need to run uh, on this. Here's some other scriptures. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. In the beginning was a word. We've already seen this in this series as we talked about the triune God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Next verse. Hebrews tells us this, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Now that gives us a picture of God existing in eternity past before creation, and also He's going to exist on the other side of creation. When he changes everything and there's a new heaven and a new earth. 
And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. There's an eternal God who has always existed. He's still alive today. He shall always exist. Psalm 89, the heavens are yours, and the earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. God's a creator, and he's the owner. Next verse. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. God spoke creation into existence. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. He didn't take stuff that was already there and make it. He just spoke it all. Job 38, God's kind of challenging Job a little bit. And Job said, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. See, the same God can look at evolution today and say, where are you? I mean, when all this happened, where were you? I was there. I did it. But you tell me where you are, what you had to do with it. Revelation, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they exist and were created. The Bible just says up front, God created everything. Now, before Brad comes up, I want to cover with you some major differences between creationism and naturalistic evolution to where you can see the contrast between the two and understand that they are polarized, that that there's big differences between the two. Some major differences between creationism, what I believe the Bible teaches, and naturalistic evolution. Let's look at these. Naturalistic evolution holds to this. They teach that creation is merely the product of time, energy, and chance. Now, you'll see how ridiculous that is when I get into some other stuff in a few moments. But that's just utterly ridiculous. Biblical creation. Creation is not an accident or a product of time, but a product of God's personal creative acts. You've got two polarized things. Can can you tell me the complexity of the human body with all of its cells just happened by chance? And I'll deal with that more in just a moment. Next slide. There's a book written by a man, I should have capitalized man and emphasized that, in 1859. His name was Charles Darwin. Origin of the Species, by the way, is a really condensed title. The title is almost a paragraph, the way he titled it. And that's pretty much the evolutionist source of truth, what they refer to and what they hold to. In contrast to that, biblical creation has a book that was written not by man but by God who used over 40 writers over a time period of more than 1,500 years and yet it still has the same theme of truth all the way through it. So we hold to the Bible God's truth being our source of truth. So I'm just kind of asking you if you're going to balance these two and decide which one you're going to believe and hold to is your system of faith because by the way, both of these are systems of faith or belief systems. Even evolution is just a belief system that people have. So if I'm going to hold to these two, which am I going to hold to? One built around a man that wrote a book or one that God wrote? Next slide. Naturalistic evolution is being used as a weapon by atheists to attack Christianity. Atheist Richard Dawkins said this, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. In other words, what Darwin wrote, give him the ammunition to say, I don't believe in God. Biblical creation 
has a living, holy God who loves us enough to make all this beautiful creation also enough to send His Son to pay for our sins on the cross. And by the way, Jesus also died for the atheists who don't want to believe in Him. Next slide. Biblical creation, for the most part, has no problem with what's called microevolution. And what I'm going to talk about just for a minute, and then Brad's going to come, is the difference between what's called microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution is this. It's a species adapting to its environment so it can survive. It is not a species turning into a different species. It's a species that God made and God created in such a way that it had adaptive qualities to where it can adapt to the environment that it's in to continue to live. I don't have a problem with that. Matter of fact, I see that as another grace of God that God made that creature to where it can adapt to its environment. But we need to reject macroevolution Because the macro-evolution teaches that everything involved without the activity of God, whom atheistic evolutionists claim does not exist. They don't want God to exist, and that's their goal. Look at the next slide, and let's talk some about macro-evolution. Macro-evolution claims this. Can can I say something? I forgot to say this earlier uh, today, too, because we've got so much content uh, some of you are looking worried about what you're trying to get all of it in, and we didn't leave you enough room. If you will send me an email this week, I'll send you the whole sermon, okay? Just email me. I won't promise to send it to you. If, you, if someone outside said, I, I want that from the first service, I, email me. I, I'm not going to remember. Email If you email me, I'll remember, and I'll send you the whole sermon. That way we've got all the notes. Because there's stuff we don't even have time to say today, to be honest with you. But macroevolution claims that one species can evolve into another separate species entirely. In other words, the thought of a fish deciding to grow legs and walk on land. Or an ape-like you know, creature you know, morphing over a period of years until it becomes what is now man. The problem is this, and, and I'll say this again in, a, in another point in a few minutes. The problem is this. There is not one bit of fossil evidence they've ever found in all the years of excavations and all the years of archaeology. They've never found one bit of archaeological evidence that gives a picture of some species slowly evolving into another species. It is non-existent. It is not there. And yet they teach it like it's fact. And it is not there. And uh, I'll say more about that in, uh, in a moment. Uh, macroevolution also teaches this. It teaches that nothing made everything. <laughs> ah, even somebody that was raised down in the country in Wilson County has got more sense than to know that that sounds like it makes logic. Nothing made everything see nothing makes nothing (laughs) because it's nothing how how in the world can they hold to to this thought to this teaching that nothing makes everything and and yet the church for many years and christians have have cowered down to what's supposed to be the logic of evolution when it's completely illogical 
It requires more faith to believe that statement than it requires to believe that in the beginning there's a God that created the heaven and the earth. That somehow nothing just made everything. You see, evolutionists accuse Christians of being people of blind faith. It takes a, a, a whole lot larger blind jump to believe that, that nothing created everything. Macroevolution also claims this. It claims evolution occurred over a long period of time, but without transitional forms in the fossil record. I've already kind of alluded to that, and you just don't have it in the fossil record, so I'm not going to talk about that more right now. I may later. Uh, macroevolution claims, and I'm going to camp out on this for a minute. Macroevolution claims that chaos made order. I'm just telling you what you know what their what their system of belief says that chaos. That some type of cataclysmic event happened out in the universe. And out of that, you get, you get order. Now, really think about that. You're telling me that the DNA molecules, a structure of DNA that's in our body, that somehow that happened just because of chaos. That somehow it, it became an orderly system. That all the flowers and all the variety in flowers and all the colors that are, that are in our world and in the earth being positioned just exactly where it would have to be for us not to freeze to death or, or burn up. And just on the right axis so we have the, the seasons that we have. All that happened by chaos it is what they, they claim. That a universe of order came about from disorder. Now, I can create disorder. I promise you I can. Go and look at my desk sometimes when I've decided not to clean it up for a period of time. I've had people who go in there on Sunday mornings, used to go in there on Sunday mornings to, you know, count the money and everything like that. And I get them whining all the time about my desk being a mess. I'd have people, you know, well-meaning to want to move things around. And I come in there and I think, where is it at now? I can't find it. But I can make my desk disorder. And the only way it gets back in order and things in files is for me to take the time to do it or Brandy to do it. Most of the time lately, Brandy does it. Thank you, Brandy. Because she gets tired of my desk being a mess when I leave it in a mess. Brandon's our secretary. It's not just some girl I've got coming in to clean my desk, okay? Your kids' rooms, for instance. Your kids can make their rooms chaos, right? There'll be some parents saying amen on that. How does it get back to order? I mean, if you just continue allowing it to amass chaos, it's somehow by leaving it in disorder, all of a sudden it's going to change itself eventually to where it's in order. Now, if that were the truth, they cannot have a TV series called Hoarders on television. Because here's what happens. The more you let it get out of order, the higher it stacks up and the more chaos is present. The only way the room gets cleaned up is if you have taught your kid into doing it and convinced them when you tell them to, they better do it, or else, or you go do it yourself. 
you cannot teach logically that that order came out of disorder. Look at what this astronomer said. Scientific guy, name's Fred Hoyle. He said this, the probability of life arising on earth by purely natural means without special divine aid, that's God, is less than the probability that a flight-worthy Boeing 747 should be assembled by a hurricane rolling through a junkyard. Now, this is a scientist talking probability. He's saying, without God, the chance that all of this order came out of disorder is more extreme than having a junkyard hurricane hit it. On the other side of it, there's a Boeing 747, and we just hop in it and go for a ride. You see, here's the, here's the deal with that. A Boeing 747 is not near as complex as things that we run into all the time. Our DNA, one molecule of DNA, one molecule of DNA holds roughly the same amount of information as one volume of an encyclopedia. One molecule of DNA has as much as one volume of science. Now, there's debate about how many molecules, but this is a conservative count. Our body has over 300 billion DNA molecules in the human body. That's like your body and my body carrying 300 billion encyclopedias. That much content. Don't tell me that happened by mistake. Don't tell me that somehow out of disorder and chaos, that just happened. Because there's a God who is an intelligent designer who made things. You see, normally when you come to something that's designed intelligently, you know what it means? It means that there's an intelligent being that made it. If you were to come across my watch that I'm wearing, it's just laying somewhere and you've never seen a watch, and you looked at the watch, and you, maybe you took the back off of it, and you looked at all the little parts there, you would think to yourself, somebody intelligent designed it. When we look at the universe and all the complexity of this universe, much more complex than this watch, guess what? Someone intelligent designed it. And his name is God. The theory of evolution has been so questioned in recent years that a person that used to consider himself as being the most notorious atheist in the world said this. I've really jumped on you now, haven't I? Uh, In 2004, he wrote a book. Or in 2004, he came to the conclusion that evolution was a lie and he built his whole life around it. In 2007... Anthony Flea wrote a book that said, that was titled this, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. That sounds like an interesting book. I think I want to get that one and read it when I get a chance. Brad's uh, going to come. As Brad's on the way, uh, let, me, uh, let me cover just a couple of things as Brad's on his way up here. One is this, macroevolution sets forth that impersonal matter made personal humanity. Now think about that. How can impersonal matter make personal humanity how can impersonal matter make us with feelings make human beings that cry make our hearts that love how can impersonal matter do that and then the last one about macroevolution is this macroevolution claims to be an unbiased science 
In other words, they try to say that we're just following where the path leads. We're just following the facts. But the problem is this. When an evolutionist, a, science, a scientist that is a naturalist and proposing uh, evolution, when he runs into a dead end and it looks like he needs to turn and go down a path that leads to a creator, refuses to do it. And yet they claim they're non-biased and they claim that we're biased because we say that we believe in God and they refuse to follow any evidence that leads to the truth or the reality of a God. Brad, you come. I'm so excited to uh, be able to share creation a few weeks ago when Liam was talking about this series. He's talking about things he's going to talk about in doctrine. And he said, and then on the third week, we're going to talk about creation. I looked at Brandon and went, sweet. Because I love creation. Um, it's just awesome to see how God created each one of us, how he created the world, and the evidence that he gives in Scripture. Um, for so long, you know, we just take things for granted. You know, um, everything I... I'm not going to even be able to touch the tip of the iceberg today with you guys. We're going to fly through this and go as fast as we can. Um, but before I get started, I just want to throw this disclaimer up and I'll explain it. Just a joking disclaimer. It says, I nor day three church are responsible for the consequences of you or your children defending their faith with the evidence given to you today. And the reason I throw that up there is this. I love teaching this material to students. I love uh, equipping students to be able to share their faith, to win their uh, friends to Christ. And... Um, I had several students who went to class ready to fight. And there was one particular student. She went in there. The teacher was just throwing all this stuff out, all this stuff that Lynn's talked about, just throwing it out. And every time she made a point, or the teacher made a point, the student raised her head and said, that's not true. This is, this is what really happened. And the teacher kind of waved it off. And it kept going and going. And finally, the, the teacher just got disgusted and angry. And, of course, the student got in trouble. Now, I say that for this reason. The information we're giving you is not to argue, it's, it's to win people to Christ. Bodie Balkum, um, in a discipleship training class that I've taught on the ever-loving truth, he said when he was just in college, he accepted Christ. A friend came to him and, and shared Christ with him. And weeks went by, months went by, and he started taking classes on, on, on the Bible and things like that. And then one day, a knock came on the door, and it was just Mormon. And Mormon was just throwing stuff at him, and, and Bodhi was just throwing it right back. Now, you're wrong, you're wrong. So the next day, he goes to class. He goes to the professor, said, You wouldn't believe it. He said, This, this guy come up to my door, and he was throwing stuff. And I just, I just throw it. Man, he left, when he left my house, his tail was between his legs, and he was out the door. And the professor looked at him and said, You won the battle, but you lost the war. He said, You'll never have a chance to talk, tell that person about, about Christ. He said, yeah, you, you threw everything at him that, that showed that he was wrong, but you, one, you've embarrassed him, and he's never going to talk to you again. So whatever you hear today, don't take it as just, just ammunition for someone else, but take it as just as a discussion with someone to open their eyes to what, to what God really has done. And that's what we're trying to show you today. I'm going to fly through this stuff. Buckle your seatbelts. We're going to go fast. Um, uh, you've seen this right here before, Darwin. But have you seen this one before? Because I'm, I'm going to guarantee you there's at least a handful of people in here, and I'm going to tell you I was one of them. It says, you know what? Darwin, Darwinism, creation, they can go together. Preachers already talked about it today. Lynn's talked about how um, evolution theories could, could fit in. I, I was that person. I was that person. We're going to start out in John 
uh, chapter uh, 3. Before we get to that, Ken Hammond answers in Genesis said this, if you reject the Bible's history, you will reject the Bible's morality. In other words, if you don't believe the creation story about what truly happened, and and you allow things to be modified in your mind and and in in your faith and your beliefs, then when it comes to sharing the gospel with somebody, there's going to be a tendency to, to, to just let some things slide, for things to change. Um, see, if we're, if we're inconsistent with the history of the Bible, we're going to be inconsistent with the morality of the Bible. And that's something we have to, we have to be real careful about because when you're witnessing to somebody, if you're sharing Christ, man, this God, you know what I did yesterday in church? I met God yesterday. Let me tell you about him. And you tell them about, and they go, well, what do you, what do you think about that whole creation story? And you go, well... It sounds good. I'm not sure about it. It sounds good. It, it's over right there. Because then they say, well, what about this God you're talking about? Is, does it just sound good or is, or is it fact? So let's just jump right in. Jesus often referred to creation in Scripture. We're going to start John three, twelve through 13. It says, but if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. He was talking to these um, leaders. You know, they've seen everything. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the stories. They've met the people. They've shook Jesus' hand, yet they still do not believe. They refuse to believe what Christ is doing. And he simply says, if you can't believe what you're seeing and you're touching and you're feeling, how can you believe what you can't see? And he was referring to creation. If I, if I tell you how the earth is, was created and you don't believe it, how can I tell you how I've created this place so much better than earth? How can I, how can I share that with you? Because you won't believe. And then if you flip over into Matthew chapter 19. And this one, Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus when it comes to uh, divorce with this question. And uh, pick up verse 4. It says, Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied, they recorded it from the beginning. God made them male and female. When did, he, when did he do that? It says from the beginning he created, he created male and female. You see, he was trying to say in the beginning, not shortly after the beginning, not, not shortly after man had evolved. Um, it was at the beginning. And see, when we want to know what's right or wrong, how do we, how do we know what's right or wrong? We have to compare it to the original. The original. And the original is in the beginning. God originally planned for male and female to marry, stay married, and die together. And we know that because he planned it in the beginning. That's where the original took place. That's how we know what's right or wrong. Mark 3, verse 19 says this. He's talking about the end time. says, For there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world, and it will never be so again. Greater anguish in those days since God what? Created the world. God created the world. This is, this is Jesus. He's referring back to God's creation. Not since the Big Bang, and again, not since man evolved, but since God created the world. You never see it again. In Matthew 24, he's talking about the end times again. Uh, in verses 37 through 39. And it says, When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings. Right up to the time Noah entered his boat. 
People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. As it was in the days of Noah. So he's acknowledging Noah. He's acknowledging flood. Again, this is something that people try to deny and don't want to believe about this enormous flood. But again, Jesus is referring to this in Scripture about the times of creation. Now I can stop right there. I've shown you where Jesus himself has quoted Scripture, referred back to creation. I mean, he should know. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was God, and that Jesus Christ himself was with God in the beginning. So he was there. He should know. I, I could stop right there. But what I want to do is show you some biblical evidence. Evidence is in Scripture that proves everything that Lynn's trying to tell you today. Now, when I, went, when I walked into Lynn's office the first day when we were talking about it, I brought my notebook. It's back there. It's about this thick. He said, you got all that? I was like, yeah. He's like, ah, we don't have enough time. So I'm just going to pick out the stuff that is dear to my heart, just the tip of the iceberg, everything. And one other thing, Brandy got me this Bible for Christmas. The reason I'm using it today is because if I were to bring my other one up and hold it like this, the first Genesis would fall out. Because I just love reading Genesis and, and learning about creation. Just Every time I dig in there, I find something new. So it would fall out. It would just fall out. The first thing, and, and Lynn mentioned it earlier, that we have to realize, evolution, creation, gap theories, whatever, all these things are on faith, are on faith. And the reason is this, there's no testability. You can't go back and do an experimentation on something that happened years ago. There's no way we can do these experiments. So because of that, it's because of faith. It's because of faith that we believe. But... There are testimonies. There are testimonies in Scripture that, that God gives us so that we can look and read and dig in and, and just figure out what in the world actually went on. But the number one conflict that we as Christians have when we do that is how long did it take? How long did it take? Because the world, scientists, even in our schools are telling us, man, it took millions of years to get all this stuff done. Millions of years. And I'll be the first to tell you, I was right in there. Uh, Lynn referred to this scripture earlier, and I, I'm going to refer back to it. It's in 2 Peter 3.8. And you tell me if you've heard this before. Just verse 8. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. This was a scripture that hit home to me. Because my world view of how the world was created didn't totally rely on this. I'd heard this scripture, and I heard what they telling me in school, and I was just like, okay, so on day one, he, you know, heavens and earth. Thousands and thousands of year, years later, day number two. It fits right in if we look at it like that, right? But we have to look at verse 9. I didn't have this on the screen, but verse 9 says, The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. No, He's being patient for your sake. It does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. You see, this scripture is not about the length of a day. This scripture is about patience. The patience for you and for myself and for the lost in this world. The patience that he has. You know, we get ticked off in a split second. We get mad at somebody. But God's grace is so much more than that. It says, to me, what is a day is a thousand years to God. He can put up with our junk forever. 
That's what that's saying. It has nothing to do with how long it took to create the world. The other, other thing that people complicate and, and try to distort is the fact of how long the actual day was. And the word day in Hebrew, if you did a word study, is yom. And yom is seen over 1,480 times in the Old Testament, just in the Old Testament. And not once does it refer to millions or billions of years. Not once. In fact, every time it's seen with a numerical adjective like on the first day, on the second day, or three days, or whatever, it's always referring to a 24-hour day. Always. Never refers to as millions of, millions of days or, or millions of years. Look at Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. And this is, this is Moses speaking. It says, Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the, week, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Moses himself, referring back to creation, says six literal days. Six literal days. Another dispute will be, all right, I understand that. But in Genesis 1, 5, and 8, and 13, um, if, you, if you read through uh, 19, it always ends with this phrase. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the second day, or marking the third day. And people were like, okay, so I know on the first day, heavens and earth, second day, water and land, third day, plants, and so forth. And, and those times... In those time frames, there was no sunshine. And the church answer would be, well, God was the light. I agree with that. But I want you to think of something in a more simple way. In Alaska, they have seasons year-round. They have seasons where evening passes and morning comes, but the sun never sets. That's their seasons. So if we can look at something as simple as Alaska and see how that works, why can we not believe that in the creation, that evening passed and morning came, even though there was no sun? Think about Alaska. The second way I want you to look at creation is the historical facts of it. Uh, eyewitness testimony. Um, if I walked out to one, one of you out here and I said, who was the first president of the United States, who would it be? George Washington. And how do we know that? Because somebody told us. Somebody wrote it down. Somebody passed it along. It's in our textbook. Somebody told us that George Washington was our first president. Have I met George Washington? No. Can I go back and prove it in time? No. But I can prove it through testimony. And that's what I want us to look at right here. Uh, all throughout Genesis, it's given genealogy and stories. But Genesis 1 and 2 is... Is from God himself, written by Moses. And then 2 through 5 is about Adam. 5 through 11 is about Noah and his sons. And 11 through 50 is about Abraham and his sons. So you think about all these genealogies, and you're like, well, there's plenty of time for things to get messed up, stories to get twisted around, things to get skewed. 
And the answer I have for you is no. You see, Adam was alive with Noah's father. Noah's after the flood, right? Adam was alive with Noah's father, Lamech, and his grandfather, Methuselah. By the way, Methuselah's name really means when he dies, judgment. And Methuselah died the year of the flood. Judgment. So you have Adam, who knows Noah through the grandfather. Well, after the flood, Noah has a son, Shem. And Shem was alive with Abraham. So from Adam all the way up to Abraham, or Abram, you only have two people. You have Methuselah, and you have Shem. How many of you in here remember stories from your grandparents? Just raise your hand. You've got stories your grandparents told you, and you just remember them. We all do. They they keep a a dear spot in our heart. Well, just imagine the story that Methuselah had to pass on to Noah about Adam and God and creation and how how God was there. I mean, just think of that story. How awesome that would have been. You you were going to remember that. You're going to remember that. And you're going to pass it on. You're going to make sure it's right. But even at that, there's only two people. So there's no way it could get twisted. You say, so I understand testimonial facts. And I understand genealogy. But how in the world do you explain how they lived so many years? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at Genesis chapter 5 and 6. 6 will be up on the screen. But at the end of verse uh, verse 5 of chapter 5, it says, Adam lived 930 years, then he died. In verse 8, it says, Seth lived 912 years, then he died. 27, it said, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. Now, Brandy has a great-grandmother. We call her Granny. She has a birthday on Groundhog's Day. That's how I remember it. She just turned 94, I believe. And we say she'd come over on the ark. All right? But, I can, you know, if somebody makes it to 100 years, we're like, man, that's awesome. Can you imagine 969 years old? So you're like, is that even possible? Well, look at 6 verse 3. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. All right, so it's acknowledging that they lived for a long time, right? But he also says, in the future, they will live no more than 120 years. We just said life expectancy. It's amazing to see somebody over 100 years old during this time. He says in the future. He didn't say right away. He didn't say right away. But when you get to Abraham, Abraham died at the age of 175 years. So just in that time frame that we just talked about, you went from 969 years to 175 years old. You can already see that, that this truth was becoming real. So yes, the 969 years, when somebody throws that out as, well, length of day back then wasn't the same as it is now because of, of the, how God created it and how old these people were. Nah, it, it was real. Scripture tells us it was real. It's the real thing. I have a friend, um, well, before I get to that, this genealogy, if, if you were to just dig in and study, it points to, to uh, the creation of Abraham being 6,500 years ago. You've heard that number several times. You're going to hear it a little bit more today. 6,500 years. And you say, okay, but what about the earth itself? What about the world itself? Well, I explain it like this. I have, I have a friend in West Virginia. He owns an oil and natural gas company. He, he, he gets this mineral from the earth. And he's a believer. 
But there's no way in his mind that he can believe that Earth is only 6,500 years old because science in his line of work says, man, it takes millions of years for, for the Earth to compact the rock, for the rock to release this gas so we can get it and pipe it into people's homes. And my comment was this to him. Do you believe God is a God of provision? We all believe that God takes care of us and God provides. Well, could a God who created the earth not put things in order, in place, as provision of what was going to be needed? Think of it this way. It says, in the beginning, God created Adam. Did it say baby Adam? No, it said Adam. Adam and Eve weren't created as babies. They were fully developed. So if God can create a fully developed human, why can he not create a fully developed earth? Ready for the things that he knew we need. Ready for the provisions of the things we need. When it comes to dating and stuff like that, scientists think they have it figured out. And they're, they're trying to throw all this stuff at us. And uh, Lynn talked about carbon dating. And I'm going to touch on that real, real quick because I don't want to bore you to death. But carbon dating is just basically measuring uranium as it decays out of fossils. Measuring its half-life or its decay time. Uranium, they're saying, is like four and a half billion years. All right? And that's how they get the time for, for all these dinosaurs and, and of this such. But rate scientists, scientists who, their job is just to figure out how to see how things are living and dying and, and measure that time, went just a little bit further. And they found out that in these fossils that were supposed to be millions and billions of years old, there was helium. Now, how many of you get your kids a helium balloon every now and then, right? What happens the next morning? It's laying on the ground. Why? Because all that helium, even though it's tied up in that nice little balloon, it gets out. It's slippery. And when they, when they went further to date in helium, they said helium lasts about 6,500 years, which would put these fossils that they're found in, saying millions of years, at 6,500 years old. Now, how could that be? So the scientist said, man, there's no way. There's no way that's possible. No way. Because we've been telling the whole world that, that dinosaurs are millions and billions of years. So there's no way that's true. It just doesn't line up. And I'll tell you this story right here to explain this more. There's a gentleman who walked into a doctor's office. It was a full doctor's office, and there's one seat, and he sits down beside this elderly man. And he strikes up, calling, hey, how are you doing? Uh, he was in for a physical, and he asked the older man, and he says, what are you here for? He said, oh, I'm waiting for someone. He said, I'm actually waiting for my mother. And he looks at him, and it's a gray-haired old man, wrinkled, just, you know, didn't look very healthy, and he's going, your mother? And about that time, a lady at 30 years old walks out, and she says, oh, hey, Mom, there's my mom now. Well, see, the, the elderly man he was talking to was actually a 13-year-old man, young boy, with a disease called progeria. And progeria is just a rapid growth. And, it, it, and see, in that guy's mind, he just saw an elderly man. So in scientists' mind, they see an old earth, millions and billions of years old. But why could it not be this young earth that God has already set provisions in and taken care of? Science and textbooks teach us and our children about dinosaurs and, and about their millions of years old. And, and I'm not going to read it, but in chapter 1... Um, it talks about, in verse 24, about when God creates the animals and the things that scurry along the ground. It's also the day he created man. Verse 27 says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created, created them. Same day as animals. 
All right? So if that's the case, then guess what? Dinosaurs are created on the same day as man. And if Adam can only was created 6,500 years ago, then guess what? The oldest dinosaur fossil they've ever found can be no older than 6,500 years old. How is that possible? Here's another way to think of it. When we sin, we deserve what? Death. If, if dinosaurs were here millions and billions of years before Adam and Eve were ever created, that means they were living and they were dying. And Scripture plainly says that the wages of sin is death. And there was no sin up to the point until Adam and Eve sinned. So therefore, there should have been no, no death. So therefore, there's another reason why dinosaurs should be no older than man himself. I'm going to finish right here with this verse um, in Matthew 24. It's where I started. It says, When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. If we reject the history of creation, if we reject, reject the history of what God is trying to explain to us about how, how wonderfully we are made, then we have to reject this. When the Son of Man returns, it will be as it was in Noah's day. If we can't believe how God created, then for what grounds do we believe that Jesus Christ is coming back? He's going to return. And I, for one, am not up here and going to say that I reject the fact that Jesus Christ is my Savior, but he's never coming back again. That's something I refuse to do. Thanks. Uh, picture. There, there's the picture that we like, okay? Uh, we're going to do this. Uh, like I said, if you want all the, uh, all the information, send me an email, I'll get it to you. Uh, we're going to jump point five and go straight to point six because I think point six is the most important. Point five you have in your notes. Point five simply says that creation uh, teaches us things about God. If you listen to a, uh, a, a score of music, it kind of teaches you some things about the, compos- the composer uh, and so forth like that. So, uh, uh, you know, work of art lets you know a little bit about the artist. Creation teaches us a whole lot about God. So read over all those if you want it in detail. You know, send me a, a, a message and I'll email it to you. But I want to be sure we get, you know, number six and then we're going to close. Uh, right before I jump in to, uh, to point number six, I do want to point out to you a lot of evidence, that, uh, the pressures that the world flood could cause and things like that also can explain for some of the pressurization that took place, you know, on, uh, on fossils and everything like that. So you kind of bear all that in mind and uh, you can study it out a little bit more. Uh, for yourself. Here's, here's point number six. What difference should the doctrine of creation make in your life? Because you see, all this content that we've thrown out is stuff that you kind of need to know and, and we really needed to give it to you because you may run into people with these different philosophies and different ideas. But the most important thing I want you to get today is this. What should the doctrine of creation make in your life? And you can boil it down into one word. You can boil it down into the word hope. Because that's what creationism gives us hope. Creation gives us a picture of a God who cared enough to make creation for us. A God who loved us enough to send His Son to die for our sins. 
Evolution doesn't give hope, and you'll see that in just a moment. But the Bible tells us uh, that creation was made, we're made by God, we belong to God, we exist for God, we're, we're loved by God, we're restless for a relationship with God, and humans will one day return to God. That's what the Bible tells us from a creation standpoint, from a Christianity standpoint about faith. That's what we're told in the Bible. Look at the next slide. The reality of a personal God who cares for us gives us hope. That's what this whole drama of the Bible is about. God loving us, sending His Son for our sins, that gives us hope. Next slide. If you don't believe in a personal God, in other words, if you believe in uh, the atheistic viewpoint of evolution, and you do not believe in a personal God who loves you and created you, then you probably believe something like this. You are made by nothing for nothing. Can I ask you what kind of existence is that? What hope is there in living that type of life, that type of approach? To believe that you came from no one, that you're alive on the earth for no purpose whatsoever, and that when you die, you go nowhere. I mean, you talk about a depressing viewpoint of life, and yet that's the option that evolutionists give you. I want to show you a quote just where you can, can get this. Uh, this atheist philosopher, uh, Bertrand Russell, he said this, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end that they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins." All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. That's a shot at our faith in Christianity. Then look at his last statement. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, all the stuff that he just said... Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Does he understand what he's saying? Is that the kind of life that you want, the kind of existence that you want to have? Is that the only hope that you have for your life? See, here's what he said. I don't know if he even realized what he said. More or less, he said this. The only logical option apart from the biblical doctrine of creation is a firm foundation of unyielding despair. If we don't have a loving God who loved us and created everything and we're going to adopt evolution as our philosophy, the only thing you have is a future of despair because one day none of us is going to matter and you're going to lie in the grave like a dog and be non-existent. Look what, look what another evolutionist said real quick. Uh, another atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins, said this. He was asked if his philosophy left him depressed. And he said, I don't feel depressed about it. But if somebody does, it's their problem. In other words, he doesn't care. <laughs> Maybe the logic is deeply pessimistic, he says. The universe bleak, cold, and empty. But so what? See, I've got news for you. People need more than so what? People need more than a foundation of just despair to build their lives upon. 
We live in a world where people need hope. We live in a world where people are committing suicide at alarming rates. We live in a world where, where young people sometimes are cutting themselves. You think all that happens? No, I have talked to young people who live in this area who cut themselves for some reason, maybe seeking attention or whatever. Maybe it makes them feel alive, but they're cutting themselves with razor blades. We, we live in a culture where people are desperate for hope, where they are depressed underneath addictions, and whatever the case might be, we are in a world, a culture that needs hope, and evolution doesn't give them hope. But the God of the Bible, the God that loves us enough to send His Son to die on the cross for our sins, that is what gives us hope. I'll be honest with you. If there's nothing better than to build your life on a foundation of unyielding despair, when times get tough and you don't see there's any hope for anything else, why not just put a gun in your mouth and pull the trigger? If there's nothing beyond this life, if there's nothing beyond the toughness, the, the, the hard things that you're facing now. See, that's the solution that people choose because they get covered in despair. I've got news for you. There is a God that created the universe. That God loves you. That God sent His Son to die on the cross for you. He has prepared an eternity for you to be with Him. And the only way you get that is through Christ Jesus. If I'm going to be brought between these two philosophies, and like we've said earlier, they are philosophies, they are, they are faith, they are people that uh, having to exercise faith, whether it be toward evolution or whether it be toward creation, if I'm going to choose one or the other, I'm going to choose a God that loves me. I'm going to choose a hope of eternity rather than cast it all away. We've got a God that wants to wipe away every tear from our eyes, not a God that says, so what? A God that loves us. These two verses, and then I'll close. Peace, Jesus said, I'll leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Philippians tells us this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God doesn't want us to build our lives on a foundation of despair. God wants to build our lives upon faith in a God that loves us and sent His Son to die for us, through whom we can have peace, not despair, not unyielding despair, but unyielding hope, everlasting hope, because Jesus loves us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we pray that you take this time right now in this service, and Lord, if there there's someone here that has never received Christ as Savior. God, speak to their heart. Lord, call them to yourself right now. Help them, to, help them to hear you, to know that you love them, that Jesus, you sent your Son to die on the cross for them so that through faith in Him, they can have hope, they can have everlasting life. God, we live in a world that's filled with despair, and there have been, been false doctrines taught in our culture that just... They lead people to no hope and lead people to despair. Father, we know that you're about hope and you're about love and you're about peace. So God, I pray that for anyone here that does not know Christ, that they would receive Him this morning. 
Father, for those of us that already know him, God, I pray that you equip us and that you make us bold and you make us to where we can stand upon your word and that we can defend the faith that you've given us. Thank you, God, that you loved us enough to create this beautiful world. Thank you, God, you loved us enough to send your son to die on the cross in our place. Speak to our hearts now as we wait before you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please stand as a band sings. If God speaks to your heart, we invite you to come. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Dathan Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.